Hello, welcome to this uh, new podcast and video cast of the American Journal of Public Health. Today, with my guests, we're going to approach uh, the situation that has been opened by uh, the uh, the leak from the Supreme Court saying that uh, Roe versus Wade was in peril and uh, it might be uh, overruled soon. And I have uh, three uh, people on on the panel that uh, have each their own specific expertise uh, to discuss this issue. So I'm just going to start by asking them to introduce themselves so that if you are only on the audio, you'll recognize their voice after. And Wendy, we'll start with you. I'm Wendy Parmet. I am the faculty co-director of the Center for Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University and the Matthews Distinguished Professor of Law there. I'm also really proud to say that I am Associate Editor for Law and Ethics of the American Journal for Public Health. Thank you, Wendy. Herminia. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me to this podcast. I'm Dr. Herminia Palacio. I'm the President and CEO of the Guttmacher Institute, um, a physician by training, and spent uh, much of my career in governmental public health. Thank you, Herminia and Farzana. My name is Farzana Kapadia. I am an associate professor of epidemiology at the School of Global Public Health at New York University. And I also have the honor and privilege of serving as the deputy editor for the American Journal of Public Health. Thank you very much. Thank you all of you for being here. So I would like to start by reminding our uh, listeners what would happen you know, very practically, if Roe versus Wade was overturned, what would be the practical implication? Maybe we'll start with you, Wendy, because you're on, that's, that's a low question. Well, I think there are short-term, medium-term, and long-term impacts. Immediately, it's going to go to the states, and we know um, that many states have abortion laws that are on the books. Some have so-called trigger laws, which will prohibit abortion in a wide range of circumstances, and, and they vary for the exceptions and the weeks. But basically, in the short term, states are going to be able to prohibit abortion with perhaps no exceptions, perhaps limited exceptions, access to abortion, access to reproductive care is going to diminish dramatically. I think there are also important potential medium and longer term impacts, both in terms of the law and health that hopefully we'll have a chance to explore. But certainly there is the possibility that there will be litigation and eventual prohibitions of certain forms of contraceptives, particularly those that opponents of abortion think of as abortifacients. So we can't assume, I think, that there will be no problem in that area. Other rights may be challenges. And there's also the possibility down the road that the federal government will itself, if the Republicans take control of the federal government, limit access to reproductive health care. So I think tremendous threats are 
to women's health, both in the short and even greater in the immediate term. So, so currently, abortion is regulated at the federal level for all states. And if Roe versus Wade is, abo- is overruled, then each state is going to be able to have its own law, and, and some of them may be extremely conservative. That, that's what you also think, Herminia. How, how is your perspective on Roe versus Wade? And, and it... You know, I want to add, sort of build on what Wendy said, because I think it's absolutely, absolutely the right analysis. And just to give you a flavor for sort of some some of the data behind sort of the broad frame that she gave, at Guttmacher, we estimate that 26 states are likely or certain to ban abortion if Roe goes down. And I think given the leak of the, the draft opinion, I think it's rather when Roe goes down rather than if. And I think while nobody was completely surprised that Roe is likely to be abandoned at the Supreme Court, either in full or de facto. I think that the breadth of this decision was a bit stunning. And as Wendy said, I think pretends a loss of other rights. 37, just to understand what the breakneck pace, 37 abortion restrictions have been enacted, not just introduced, enacted between January 1 and May 5th. There have been over 500 different kinds of abortion restrictions introduced since January 1st at various uh, state levels. So the this, this threat is not theoretical. It is happening right now. There are many people who already are de facto living in a post-row world in many states, and that's only going to accelerate and get worse. Thank you, Arminia. Farzana, maybe you want to compliment to what uh, Wendy and Hermia said? Yeah, I think the information that they've provided on what will happen in terms of the legal landscape really portends not well outcomes for women, for children, for their families. Um, you know, the U.S. compared to other high-income countries has one of the worst maternal mortality rates. We've shown in work published in AJPH that women living in states with restrictive abortion policies, such as mandatory waiting periods and restrictions on Medicaid abortions, Medicaid coverage for abortions, there's already higher maternal mortality rates in those states compared to states without such restrictions. So we're looking at potentially worsening those outcomes. Um, We know that women who are denied abortions more likely to live in poverty, more likely to require public assistance, and obtain, have a harder time obtaining full-time work, these outcomes will worsen. And these hardships aren't negligible. They have impacts on food insecurity, housing availability, impacting, de- impacting and delaying medical care, preventative health care. Um, you know, the cascade of effects as a result of that will worsen. So, and we know that these are the social determinants that drive health and well-being. Um, and we're talking about potentially undermining and overturning and re- going backwards um, on the progress that's been made thus far. Mm-hmm. But before we go to uh, more in depth to those issues uh, of equities also, uh, how did we get 
here and, and how come you know five supreme courts five justices conservative justices today can say that seven justices you know 50 years ago were incompetent i mean there's something that that makes no sense for me uh, can you explain wendy how can how is this possible well i think it's important to understand that overruling roe and that really also means overruling Casey and overruling a lot of other less well-known cases that have reaffirmed the right to abortion over the last 50 years has been a central focal point of a conservative legal movement since um, the early 1970s. And there has been an extraordinary effort to appoint judges, to elect people who will appoint judges who adhere to ideologies that really developed all around getting rid of Roe, right? So we hear a lot of talk about originalism and textualism, but these jurisprudential approaches really developed hand in glove with the anti-abortion movement and the anti-abortion movement's centrality to um, the conservative legal movement. And it has been a very important and very powerful and very well-funded movement. I think we also need to understand the politics. And we are now in a moment where the country is not just deeply polarized, but moving towards extremes, where there's deep polarization, where there's gerrymandering, and where in much of the country, what goes for competitive elections is only the Republican primaries where you get people running based on how anti-abortion they are. And so we have both the politics and the legal movements have aligned. And of course, there's also, finally, hardball politics and for abortion and reproductive rights, bad luck, right? So we need to, can't forget the hardboard, hardball, excuse me, politics that Mitch McConnell played in, in a sense, giving Merrick Garland a vote on the Supreme Court and then rushing through Amy Coney Barrett's elevation to the court. And we now have a majority of just, you know, three justices appointed by a president who did not win the popular vote. We have also justices appointed by President Bush who did not. And so, you know, we have this sort of coalescence of the triumph of the conservative political jurisprudential movement and the increasing radicalization on issues related to choice of the Republican Party. Thank you, Wendy. Herminia, what's your your perspective or the Guttmacher Institute perspective on all those states that, that are banning? I mean, is there a majority of people supporting those laws there? Or uh, what's the situation locally? Well, you know, I, I want to say no. I think that there's clear data that suggests that this is not a majority uh, popular vote. But I also want to build on what Wendy said. I think the short answer to the very uh, detailed answer that Wendy gave to how did we arrive here is not accidentally, right? We arrived here very intentionally, very methodically, and yes, as uh, Wendy described with some intentional effort over the last, you know, 40 to 50 years, 
but also I think it's important to look back at our historical grounding because this is going to, as, as Harsana alluded, this is really going to impact people who are low income, people who already have difficult housing situations, people who are black, brown, and indigenous. And we have a long and storied history in this country of controlling reproduction, making the determination through policy of who makes a good parent, who's allowed to decide when and if to become pregnant, who's allowed to decide when and if to raise children, who's allowed to decide when and if to abort. And, you know, there's an entire movement that emerged in the 1940s here, originated by black women, but is really now a much more broad and intersectional movement of reproductive justice. And really, this is a movement that frames reproduction at, in a human rights framework, right? That people should have, that all people should have the dignity, the humanity to be able to decide when and if to become a parent, when and if to become pregnant, when and if to terminate, to, and to be able to raise families if they choose to do so with appropriate housing, appropriate income, with the understanding that at the very roots of slavery was, was black women's bodies being treated as economic engines, being bred, being separated from their children something that we saw now at the border, at the southern border, people being separated from their children. These anti-voting, anti-abortion, anti-immigrant policies are all being advanced by the well-funded movements that Wendy described. These are overlapping and not accidental oppressive actions. Can I add something to that, which is absolutely right. agree with everything you said, but I just want to add historically, you know, there's good evidence now, historical evidence, that the focus on abortion by the conservative movement was in one way, a very intentional way of covering, shall I say, the attack on a liberal judiciary because of Brown versus Board of Education. And there came a point, right, where it was just harder to attack Brown. Attacking Roe, attacking abortion rights was also one way of getting to that backlash for the expansion of rights and the expansion of equality that we saw in the middle of the 20th century. And it was a way of channeling the forces that were opposed to civil rights on racial grounds and using them as a way of coalescing around abortion. So this intersection is really deep and goes back to the 1970s and sort of the turn the Republican Party took. And just to know, you know, back in the day of Roe, there was not the kind of political alignment, party alignment on abortion that we have today. Yeah, this is very clear, very important in terms of the background for this uh, overruling now. And so in practice, uh, what will happen in the different states and across the country when there will be such inequality of access uh, across states? Who wants to address that? Well, I mean, I think I'll begin. And there, you know, I think that Farzana really talked about what are some of the health impacts going to be. And I think it's important that we couch this and re we uh, understand in some ways what some of the options are. 
right? So people will have to travel much further to get an abortion. Traveling doesn't just mean covering the cost of travel, right? It means taking days off from work. It means finding, you may need to find childcare because many people who have abortions are already parents. It may mean risking a job. And as we see, there have been efforts to, that it may also mean criminalization, right? That you are risking legal sanction. And it's important to recognize that medication abortion, incredibly from a health and medical perspective, is also under direct assault. So as they're making abortion illegal, they're also attacking telecommunication, you know, telemedicine laws and restricting access to medication abortion. This is an all-out assault. The people who will get crunched are the people who always get crunched, right? And wealthy people will be able to fly to a friendly state to successfully acquire their abortion or will be able to successfully acquire medication. And it is, it is the, the populations that are historically marginalized and it's not historical, that are currently marginalized that will be the most adversely by this effort, including being forced to carry a, a pregnancy to term, which by the way, childbirth is from a medical perspective, a much more dangerous uh, and risky procedure than an abortion. And I think it's important that we really highlight because there's a lot of rhetorical devices there's all these laws that are made, the trap laws that are really about, that are guised in, uh, in a disingenuous narrative about trying to make abortion safe. Abortion is safe. The, the data are really quite clear about that. Absolutely, absolutely. I guess I just wanna add on to Herminia's comments, which I, uh, I, which is that, you know, when we're talking about women who are marginalized, women who live in rural areas already face some of the worst um, health outcomes, have lack of access to adequate care, quality care. They're living on the they're living in poverty or on the margins. Um, and I bring and I raise this because it, it, it really is an issue of, you know, access and travel time, etc. But also these, you know, when we're talking about these abortion restrictions from a provider perspective, um, providers will be less likely, and I'm not just talking about OBGYNs, but also primary care physicians, will be less likely to want to practice in states with such restrictive abortion policies. And those are already states that have woefully inadequate healthcare infrastructures. So, um, you know, in terms of access to care, this could really have significant and damaging impacts. So we we need thank you Farzana. We we need to as I, I I hear what you say. We need also to look forward because if Roe is going to be overruled, you know, and and Roe, I mean a Supreme Court decision that rules abortion for a country that's not the optimal situation. And you have a, a few uh, conservative justices that can overrule it like that against the opinion of the majority of the population. So a step that uh, could be taken in order to improve the situation in terms of abortion in this country, now, going beyond Roe. Well, one thing is certainly the passage of the Women's Health Protection Act, which was passed in the House of Representatives, and it was voted down 
in the Senate. And again, as we think about sort of the fact that we can't get voter rights protection, that we can't get the Women's Health Protection Act, these things are actually all tied into filibuster reform. And I, I think it's important that we not disaggregate and treat all of these issues as sort of separate issues because they are very much related. And the public health and legal discourse and societal discourse, I think, needs to really zone in on what are the opportunities to advance not just access to abortion, but, but really to sort of broaden the lens to talk about the way in which society makes decisions about who gets to have dignity, who gets to live in inequitable circumstances, what are those policies. And I think we do have to sort of really understand what legal actions are available to us that we're not taking. Filibuster reform is one of those to get the Women's Health Protection Act passed in the Senate, which is the only remaining chamber that hasn't passed it. But what, can you just explain briefly what's the Women's Health Protection Act? What is there in there? Sure, I'll take a quick flyover, and Wendy, if you want to do a deeper legal analysis, that that would that would be fine. Really, it is an act that will that sort of will prevent sort of the the rolling back of abortion rights in in all of these fifty states. It is a way to sort of expand and to to make sure that at the federal government level that access to this broad array of reproductive services is protected. So so does it introduce it in the constitution, Wendy? What what where where would be the difference? Well, it would be a federal statute. It would seek to preempt override state prohibitions by ensuring the right. But I want to emphasize something that was said earlier. We really need to see the connections between this, this act, its potential voting rights, and what's going on sort of at the state level. Um, you know, not only is filibuster reform need it would be needed to get this but we need to understand first of all that the federal courts are uh, probably not the friend even of this act that efforts that are going to be undertaken to try to secure reproductive rights will likely face federal court challenges that what we really need to see is a change in political dynamics. For a very long time, those people who supported reproductive health and, frankly, all kinds of issues that relate to health equity and the improvement of health, a majority of people have cared about these issues, but they're not the ones who voted for state legislatures. And the, and, and the problem right now, ultimately, is that state legislatures in many states are very gerrymandered. The elections do not represent the health needs, the well-being, or the views of much of the population. Look what's happening in Texas. Look what's happening. There are a lot of states where the, you know, the support for reproductive health and the outcome and the way the state legislatures are going are in dramatically different. And so this needs to be, you know, organized. This needs for people to be educated and involved at the local level. Unfortunately, that's a long-term agenda. And, you know, fam women, families, the most vulnerable are going to be adversely impacted in the short and, and the midterm. But in the long term, 
you know, no federal law, in fact, no law is secure as long as you have the political dynamics that we have right now and the, the conflation of the political and judicial dynamics. Well, I want to say that in the long term, and, and here's a little bit the historian that comes in, in the long terms, history goes in the direction of expanding women's rights and reproductive rights. Look at South America, you know, after years of conservative government and dictature, Colombia has legalized abortion, Argentina, Chile, Chile, uh, 50 years ago, Chile was, you know, they, they were the, the army was uh, overthrowing a legally elected government with the help of the CIA. Today, they have a very progressive government. They're considering having a, uh, the right to abortion in the Constitution. And we are in the United States, you know, having to handle people like uh, Pinochet's to be who sends their uh, troops against the, the capital. So, I mean, the direction of history is rather positive. So I, I know the situation is very difficult and, uh, and tragic on some aspect. But, I mean, we should maybe not be pessimist of the long run what will happen. Uh, I think in the short run, there are folks who are really activated to make sure that the resources are provided to people who need abortion right now, right? Abortion funds are activated. There's, a, there's donations appropriately pouring into them. They're, they're helping people get the access to this healthcare service that they need in the right now, but they're not re able to reach everybody. Not everybody knows how to reach them. And it shouldn't be this hard, frankly, right? We shouldn't make people jump into this many hoops. But I'm that you're absolutely right that that well I would I would say not only is the direction in the rest of the the globe positive in many aspects, but that the U.S. has something to learn from that very specifically and can look to to you know sort of at looking global and thinking more domestically here. But you mentioned some of the countries: Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, and Nepal. They've all incorporated human rights into reproductive, you know, human rights standards into sort of groundbreaking cases around reproduction. But it's also important to know that what the U.S. does, does seek permissiveness for oppression in regimes that are predisposed to oppress. So there is a give and take. We need to learn from sort of the liberalization that's happening across the globe, but we should also be very worried about the signals that we're sending. Uh, we don't, we do not have our, even our own foreign policy very clear here, right? We are still restricted. So not only are domestically with the Hyde Amendment, do we restrict access for Medicaid to pay for abortion? So we're saying poor people, you're, you don't have the same rights to this healthcare service that other people do. But we've got a Hounds Amendment globally, which is is overinterpreted, frankly. And part of it is over. It part of the reason it's overinterpreted is that uh, and the global gag rule, part of which has been rescinded, but Hounds is not. Part of the reason they're overinterpreted is that there is benefit in confusion for those who oppose abortion. And so you've got abortion providers in other countries who are 
or, or providers of, of reproductive health who are loath to even talk about abortion, which they're able to do if they get USAID dollars, if they get USAID. So it's really important that we are firing on all cylinders so that, as you say, the march, you know, the march is, but there are urgent needs, right? You can't, there are, there are people who need abortions right now. These are urgent needs. These are life altering decisions, right? People, people who are pregnant can't just wave a magic wand and decide not to be pregnant if they don't have access to this important healthcare service. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, uh, Arminia, you summarized the, the, the situation uh, and uh, it's a very difficult situation, but things are happening uh, to help uh, women. And uh, there are some uh, uh, perspective in uh, trying to uh, reverse the situation. if. Politically, as Wendy and uh, Farzana said, we can uh, create the uh, the momentum and, and 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 the forces to actually change uh, the conservative direction in which we are now. I want to thank you all for your time and uh, uh, really for uh, your ideas. Uh, it's a very difficult uh, question, and I I learned a lot from all of you. Thank you.